This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Elysium The driver tugs on the reins, bringing the massive horses to a stop. With a creak, the funerary chariot comes to rest. Several well-dressed family members break off from the procession and heft the grisly cargo aloft. Their eyes are red, though their faces are stoic as they try to keep their emotions in check. As they bear the coffin toward the dark hole that is its final resting place, the white-robed priest walks along beside, waving a censer trailing with the blue-gray smoke of burning incense. May the judges find you worthy, may your passage across the river Styx be swift, and may you find rest in the blessed fields of Elysium and in the memories of your loved ones. Meanwhile, all you can think is, we're going to need to hire a new fighter. Here's a question for you, dear word nerds. What happens when your player character dies? The answer is pretty simple. The party checks their pocket change to see if they can scrounge the necessary gold to pop down to the local temple and buy a resurrection because in D&D, everything up to and including death can be treated with a simple over-the-counter cure. If they can't afford a bottle of Vicks Dyquil, then you go off to the corner of shame with a pile of D6s and start making a new character. Or, if you're pressed for time, you just write a new name on your old character sheet and then you suddenly appear and say, I'm Rogar the Third. Have you guys seen my brother Rogar the Second? And the party says, Sorry. He's being strained through the digestive tracts of 20 hit dice worth of Gricks. But would you like to join us and avenge him? And you say, Hell yes, let's go. Because if there is one thing that D&D has taught us, it's that death is a somber, weighty, sullen affair. But it's just not worth holding up a game for. But that doesn't mean that D&D hasn't tried to deal with the other aspects of death. You know, the parts that have to do with spirits and loss and being forced to confront your own mortality and the implied meaningless of your existence given that you spend so much more time dead than alive, at least on a cosmic scale, and how is it that loved ones that affected you so deeply can simply cease to be when they are gone, and why is it worth loving anyone or anything? Well, okay, D&D hasn't tried to deal with all of that. But the thing is, that is the purview of spirituality. Spirituality, religion, and philosophy attempt to reconcile precisely those issues. And whatever your view of the answers, whether you believe there must be something more than fleeting existence, or whether you believe the answers are merely a comforting illusion, you can't deny that religion and spirituality are essential components of human culture and much of it comes back to how we deal with death. And D&D has tried to deal with that, though it has done some weird stuff, really weird stuff. For example, there was a time when elves could not be brought back from the dead because they had no souls to call back from the afterlife. 
Mechanically and theologically, elves were soulless. And the entire Great Wheel cosmology that just won't leave the D&D universe is an overly complicated and contrived explanation for where souls go based on the moral horoscope that is alignment. The most famous attempt to deal with the spiritual and philosophical aspects of death, the afterlife, and what that said for the meaning of mortal life came in the Planescape setting for second edition. Some folks loved that setting. We sure did. But it was a bit bloated, with needless pop philosophy, and it was very impressed with itself. It taught us about how when you died, you were reborn as a sort of mindless aligned drone in one of the numerous afterlives of D&D, like the seven mounting heavens of Celesta, the clockwork nirvana of Mechanus, and the concordant opposition of the Outlands. Yes, that was a real place for those who chose to be true neutral like druids, and people who don't understand the basic concept of human moral and ethical behavior. By contrast, the fourth edition explanation was relatively simple, and sort of mysterious, and a little bit scary. When you died in 4e, your soul sort of fell into the Shadowfell, a bleak land filled with emo-gothic punk worshippers of the Raven Queen. Eventually, your soul would make its way to the Raven Queen's palace and pass, well, beyond. It went somewhere, and only the Raven Queen knew where. Now, if you were a devout follower of a particular deity, you could be picked up and shuffled off to their divine realm to enjoy an appropriate afterlife. But that was the exception and it was implied in some of the 4E material that it was actually a subversion. In point of fact, the Raven Queen was a mortal queen who killed the original god of death, Nerul, when she discovered that he was hoarding souls for the gods and not allowing them to move on. Of course, almost everything in D&D is built upon real-world mythologies. It might surprise you to learn that names like Hades and Nirvana and Heaven and Hell and Acheron and Limbo were not inventions of Gary Gygax. As it turns out, many of those things were references to actual mythological, spiritual, and religious otherworlds. I know, he didn't just make up the word Hell, and even when the references aren't explicit, they're still there. For example, there's a lot of Aztec and Mesoamerican mythology in the 4E story of souls migrating across the land of the dead, avoiding torments, and seeking their final mysterious fate. But this week's word isn't Mictlan, and it isn't Nirvana. We've discussed those before. What we haven't actually discussed is one of the most famous lands of the dead in the Western world, and a weird omission in our understanding of it. We're talking about life and death in ancient Greece. Let me ask another question. Did the ancient Greeks have a heaven? Here's the interesting thing. When you look at all the mythology and all of the pop culture that has grown around the mythology, you know all about Hades, the man and the place. Well, not the man, the god. Hades was the Greek underworld, 
You died, you went to Hades, ruled over by Hades, and there you pretty much stayed until some mythical hero tricked a three-headed dog and made some sort of weird deal with Hades, the god, to get you out of Hades, the place. And Hades was, by most accounts, a pretty rotten place. We've seen Disney's Hercules, or played Kingdom Hearts. We've seen Clash of the Titans, especially the remake. And we've played God of War. Hades is a dismal land. At best, it's gray and somber and sad and ruled by Ralph Fiennes. At worst, it's filled with fire and brimstone and James Woods and Bobcat Goldthwait. But the idea that you just got dumped into the spiritual equivalent of a landfill for eternity unless some bard decided to try and pull your soul really doesn't jive with the ancient Greek view of death. The Greeks took death really seriously. I mean really seriously, like a lot of ancient people. See, it all came down to this concept called Eusebia, now, we loosely translate Eusebia to mean piety or spirituality or devoutness, but the concept was closer to the idea of duty. To give you a sense of what I mean, let's talk about Socrates. Socrates was a Greek philosopher, a brilliant dude for his time, though he had a lot of screwy, incorrect ideas about science. But he also had a lot of ideas about how maybe the crazy Greek religion was a little off and it was teaching people the wrong lessons and maybe we needed to think about morality and ethics in secular and practical terms. And he taught these lessons to kids. Worse, he taught everyone, including kids, that the way to learn was to ask questions. Question things, challenge things, demand good explanations. And if something doesn't hold up to rigorous questioning, maybe it's not good. Socrates was put to death by the powers that be of ancient Greece, and his crime was impiety. It was about that Eusebia word, because he was corrupting youth and turning them against Greek society and every Greek had a duty to society and to their elders and to their rules and so on. Another aspect of Eusebia, one that wasn't punished nearly so much as teaching kids to keep asking why until you want to run them through with a Xiphos, was remembering and honoring the dead. See, there were all these rules about how the dead had to be treated. They had to be buried, for one thing, properly buried, and the rituals surrounding death were elaborate. They varied a little based on your status, but every Greek was expected to do their best within their means to deal with the dead properly. For example, when a Greek died, their family would dress them up in nice clothing and have a little get-together to remember them. And once the wake was over, you didn't just toss the person into the ground. There was a procession. You put the corpse in a chariot, or the loved ones gathered together to carry it, and you took them to the burial site and had a funeral. If any of this sounds familiar, it's because the Greeks laid the foundation for almost all of the modern burial rites in the Western world. Though it should be noted that many other cultures had similar traditions, such as the Semitic tradition of sitting Shiva. 
but a Greek wake and funeral looked a lot like a modern funeral, right down to the corpse chariot driven down the street with a long row of mourners behind it, all with their hazard lights on. So, do these sound like the sort of people who seriously believed that the soul just went to a sort of dismal limbo and lamented there? Forever? Yes, for those of you who are a bit more knowledgeable about ancient Greek mythology, I know you're already shouting about Elysium. I'm getting there. Interestingly, the third installment of the God of War video game series kind of shone a light on this omission in pop culture. During the game, Kratos, a Spartan warrior who murders his way through Greek mythology, ends up in Hades. Again. He always ends up in Hades. The place, not the god. And there, he meets three kings. Minos, Rhadamanthos, and Aeacus. And they are the three judges. And if you're only familiar with the Disney and Harryhausen version of the Greek afterlife, you might be wondering who in Hades they are. Minos, Rhadamanthos, and Aeacus were all mortal kings who had one thing in common. They could trace their lineage back to Zeus. They were demigods. Minos was famous for building the labyrinth in Crete and feeding people to the Minotaur, which translates to Bull of Minos. Rhadamanthos was Minos's brother, who fled for fear that Minos was going to kill him, which must have made working together in the forever after a little bit tense. And Iacus was the son of Zeus and a river god's daughter that Zeus had rescued from her parents' wrath. And their job was to judge the dead that came to Hades. The wicked dead were consigned to the pit of Tartarus. It was the bleakest, dismalest, most tormentful part of Hades. If you were virtuous, you went to the sunny Elysian fields to enjoy a pleasant and rewarding eternity. And here's where things get interesting. If you were forgotten, if no one knew or cared who you were, you ended up wandering as a shade across the gloomy plains of Hades. And that is why it was the duty of every ancient Greek to remember the loved ones that had passed away. Because being forgotten meant literally fading from the universe. It's interesting to note, though, that Elysium and Tartarus evolved. When Homer and Hesiod were writing, Tartarus was the place where Zeus threw the evil titans. Elysium was an island paradise for immortals, demigods, and heroes. And Hades was the underworld for everyone else. But gradually the view changed. In point of ironic fact, it was Socrates who is credited as really delineating how the afterlife worked and how judgment happened and why. So, how can you use this in D&D? Well, you can just go the Planescape route and let the players bounce from heaven to limbo to hell to Acheron to Bitopia with magic spells and just make interesting adventure sites about them. But maybe the better lesson here is that it's worth giving some time to what happens to the dead, especially dead PCs. 
Does your world have funerary rites? What happens if they aren't observed? Do those left unburied rise as undead? Or become tormented souls haunting those who failed to honor them? For that matter, what happens to a PC in the time between the death and the resurrection spell? Do they come back changed for the experience? What do they get a glimpse of? After all, you want your players to recognize that their friends and allies have died, and if you can't get an emotional response out of them, you can at least threaten them with the vengeful spirit of their fallen comrade, who can still cast all those fifth level spells if they don't at least pretend to care. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com. Thank you.